Hey, good morning, Christ Hold Fast. This is Pastor Eric Sorensen uh, coming to you from my office here. Looking forward to being with you today because we're starting a new devotion series. We're looking at um, 1 Peter. We're going to be camping there for a while. And uh, my hope is, as we go through that, that you will be blessed by it and you will be uh, you will see how relevant it is for us today and, uh, and for our future. Uh, just a couple of details. I'm not going to go real in-depth about First Peter as far as like, um, you know, all, there's a lot of detail that you could go in into about the authorship and about, you know, the occasion for writing, etc., etc. Uh, but these two things are probably the most important details you need to know by way of introduction. One... Peter is writing. Uh, it is Peter, the Apostle Peter, writing this letter. There was never any debate about that in the early church, in the um, first part of the in the in the first centuries of the church. Everyone ascribed this letter to Peter. There was no doubt about that. That was not the case with Second Peter, of course. Second Peter, um, there was some question about that. They ended up coming down on the side of believing that it was an authentic. Uh, piece of writing, but but First Peter never had any of that. First Peter was always seen as written by the apostle. So that's first thing you need to know. Second thing, uh, the occasion for writing. Peter is writing to a persecuted group of Christians that are uh, that are struggling. Uh, they have been uh, dispersed. They have uh, struggled with uh, their station in life, and they're just not. They're not sure about this Christian thing. Um, not an uncommon response when one goes through persecution to wonder if, you know, well, they're on the right team. You know, is this a sign that maybe God's cursing me or that I made the wrong choice by doing this, you know? Uh, and so Peter wants to assure them and shore up their faith so that they can handle the tough times coming. And so a lot of the theme of this letter is going to be uh, really what God's word is to those who are facing struggle and those who are going through difficult times. And that's what we'll see even today in our introductory passage. So let's read it. First Peter chapter 1 verses 1 through 5. It reads like this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Man, just even in those first two verses, there is a lot, but we'll get to it. Let's continue. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And let's cut it off there because there's already probably too much for me to talk about in just that passage in this little devotion here, but I'm going to try. So, uh, you heard lots of good words just now. But the first question I have for you as you heard those words is to ask you, who is doing the verbs? 
Who is doing the verbs in our passage? Well, I think it's pretty clear in the text we're told that we are elected, that we are caused to be born again. That's the wording, caused to be born again. Guarded, all according to his foreknowledge and great mercy. Who's doing the verbs? God is doing the verbs. And more specifically, the triune God is doing the verbs. Look at verses 1 and 2 again, and you'll see all three names mentioned there. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the Spirit sanctifies us, or makes us holy, setting us apart for His purposes and His usage. And Jesus Christ sprinkles us with His blood because of His obedience. The way that translators translate that verse is an interesting thing. It can seem to be suggesting that it's something that it's our obedience that's emphasized, but I don't think that that's actually a good rendering of it. I think it's meant to suggest that because of the obedience of Jesus Christ, we now are sprinkled with his blood. But be that as it may, all three members of the Trinity are involved in this process in which we're told that we are born again. And so the first thing Peter wants to remind a group of struggling Christians a group of Christians that are, that are really unsure about this life and this standing uh, and their standing with God is that God is for them and he has uh, taken care of them. He is guarding them. He has caused them to be born again. And we need to be reminded of the same thing whenever we go through struggle. We need to be reminded that God has done work in us and is continuing his work in us. So what in the world does that phrase, born again, actually mean anyway? I suppose, uh, for some, the phrase born again immediately sort of conjures up images of holy rollers or fundies that like playing with snakes, you know. But, of course, to be born again is a biblical word. It's a biblical idea. You can find it used in John 3 and of course this passage and there's it's alluded to in many other passages with different sort of wording you might hear the word regeneration um, or rebirth it's the same thing and so we should use it we should use the the term born again uh, the key is using it properly um, so a according to our text to be born again is to have something happen to you according to God's great mercy. A person is born again according to God's great mercy. He has chosen those who are born again or who will be born again before the foundation of the world on account of Jesus, Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Now, being raised in a highly individualistic culture amidst revival meetings and altar calls, it's common for us to think that our choice is what causes us to be born again. But... Just as babies in the fleshly realm do not choose when they will be procreated or when they will be born, we too do not ultimately choose in the spiritual realm. God decides when he is going to give us new life by faith through the word of the gospel. God is always the initiator. God is always the one giving the birth. R.C. Sproul, a Calvinist theologian who is deeply influential on this Lutheran, 
said it well, I think, when he said rebirth or regeneration is monergistic, not synergistic. It is done by God and by God alone. A dead man cannot cooperate with his resurrection. Lazarus did not cooperate in his resurrection. Unless God acts first, we will never be reborn in the first place. We must also realize it is not as if pe dead people have faith. And because of their faith, God agrees to regenerate them. Rather, it is because God has regenerated us and given us new life that we have faith. Now, Sproul touches on a couple of things there. He mentions the word dead. What being born again implies is that we naturally are dead in our sins and trespasses, as the rest of the scriptures tell us. And yet God in his mercy has chosen to give us new life. That's what Sproul is getting to. Uh, but this brings up another question then. Um, if it is the case that it is all God's work that determines whether we're born again, well then how can we know for sure that we have been born again? Well, let's look again at verses 1 and 2. To those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. Hmm. I want you to stop and pause right there on that word, sprinkling. Uh, there are two images that immediately come to mind by Peter using that word, sprinkling. They're Old Testament images, and both are very important for sure, especially for what we're discussing here. Uh, the first image comes from the sacrificial system. If you go back to Exodus 24, verses 4 through 8, you can do that on your own. There you're, you're going to read about God establishing the Mosaic Covenant between himself and the people of Israel. And what Moses does to sort of seal the deal at the end is he sprinkles the people with the blood of the sacrifice. Now, if you skip ahead hundreds of years to the prophet Isaiah... He tells us in the 52nd chapter of his writing that when the Messiah comes, he will, quote, sprinkle many nations, not just the one, but everyone. So part of what Peter is alluding to here is to say, you, Christian, have been brought into a new and better covenant. The book of Hebrews is all about this. You could read on and on and on about it there. But Peter's just alluding to that here. But there's another allusion that answers our question specifically about when a person is born again, when a person receives new life. And that's in the second usage of sprinkling that you find in, uh, in the Old Testament. The usage conveys baptismal imagery. Uh, there's a wonderful passage in Ezekiel that, uh, that shows this beautifully. In the passage, uh, the Lord is telling us what he will do one day as a result of Jesus coming, and this is what he says. It's such a great passage. He says in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, he says, quote, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. 
and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all of my rules. Now, when you look at that, from, from God's sprinkling of water, what he says happens is cleansing from sin, filling with the Spirit, a new heart being given, and a new desire to obey him. That, indeed, is what it means to be born again. For Ezekiel, and I believe Peter here, the answer to the question of whether one is born again is, have you been sprinkled? Have you been baptized? Now, sometimes when we struggle with ongoing sin or fall into despair, we are tempted to wonder if we've really been born again at all. Uh, what we tend to do then is go on and you know, sort of do an inward search or an inward inventory to determine if our faith is strong enough or perhaps we, we make plans to be more penitent. This, this is sort of our natural tendency. But here's what happens if you go down that road. If you go down the inward road to determine whether you're truly born again or not, I can guarantee you it will always go this way. You'll either end up proud or you'll end up despairing. Proud because you actually start to think that your faith is strong enough and that your works are crushing it. Or despair because you're just too honest to pretend that your faith is strong enough and that your works are crushing it. So if you ever wonder if you're truly born again, if the experience that you had or the belief that you had or uh, whatever it might be is actually genuine, instead of looking to the subjective the scriptures are pointing us to the objective, the objective means of grace. And one of those objective means of grace is baptism. That's where God says, I put my name on you. That's where God says, I have drowned you in the waters of baptism to raise you back to new life. Romans 6, look it up. You can't get away from it. Romans 6, look it up. It's so vivid in its imagery of what God does in baptism. He kills and he makes alive new birth. So instead of looking to yourself to try and figure out if you're genuinely, genuinely born again, look to what God says. Yes, you are. Because I baptize you into my name, the name of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then if you have, Peter says, well, if you've been elected by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, and have been born again to a living hope, you have then been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, and you by God's power are being guarded. Well, that leads to the next question. And that is, uh, that, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it here, we'll spend more time on it next weekend, but simply put, do you believe it? Do you trust that do you trust that what God says is true about you no matter what your experience no matter how much you may still struggle with ongoing sin do you believe when he told that he really does uh look at you as his son or daughter that he has given you new birth do you believe what he said he gave you in your baptism because Peter does say in this passage that these things are attained through faith through 
belief? Do you believe that you're a sinner in need of the redemption and eternal life that only Jesus can give you? Do you trust in his life, death, and resurrection as enough to cover you, uh, a wicked sinner, before a holy and just God? Then, my friend, you are a new creation. Born again. Period. Done. End of issue. That's it. God's not done with you. Now that he has caused you, caused you to be born again, he will produce a new life in you. And uh, we're going to see some of the, the signs of that new life in uh, the ne- in chapter 1 the next time we get together next week. So uh, with that, let's, uh, we'll sign off. I hope this was encouraging to you. God bless you, and uh, may you have a great week. Thanks.